Hi, I'm John Miller. I'm the Arkansas Sounds Music Coordinator at the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies, and this is Arkansas Sounds on Primary Sources. Today, my guest is John Kane, community activist, host, and program manager at community radio station KABF 88.3. John, welcome to Primary Sources, and thanks for joining us. Appreciate the invite, John. Thank you so much. Um, let's start with the basics for folks who may not be familiar with you. They've probably heard your wonderful voice many times, but they may not be familiar with your vitals. Um, are you from Arkansas? Where are you from? I'm a country boy. I'm from Wrightsville, Arkansas. I grew up there in the 50s. Wow. Wow. So you've been in Arkansas pretty much all your life then? About half my life. I half think. your life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, most folks remember you and know you from your involvement with KBF from the very beginning. I can I can testify that I had a radio show at KBF when I was 16 and 86, um, and you were there then, and I can remember you from the very beginning. So um, was that your first involvement with community radio and radio in general? Radio in general, no. Uh, I first started commercial radio. Wow, okay. In the late... 60s as the Mellow Fellows exited KALO, which was the first real radio signal in the city. Wow. So I started with a proposal uh, back about 64 with Ed Phelan, who was station manager. Uh, I wanted to bring uh, a different profile and perspective on African-American culture that was not in the medium as it should have been with other disciplines other than just music. So we were talking about theater and those sorts of things, and that's how I got into it. Made a flat-out proposal. He needed an engineer. I wasn't a full, fully qualified engineer, but I had enough sense to take readings <laughs> overnight because... Believe it or not, I started at a 1,000-watt AM station that was 500 watts at night. Wow. I did a five-hour late, late, late-night show. Wow. A five-hour show? What time did you start? Midnight until 5 a.m. Wow. Did you, guys, were you, did you ever go off the air, or did it just start again, programming start again at 5? I was live. We, the, the, the program format actually changed to morning drive at five. I was out there, so I did that every night, six nights a week. Live? Live. Wow. And and went home and got a a couple of hours of sleep and then went to do it and did a day job for about (laughs) six hours. (laughs) That's how I got in it. Man. Yeah. So did you stay in radio pretty much from that time? forward? I've been in radio ever since. Never been out. And so, so that was 64. How old were you then? Oh, I was out of the Navy five years. So I was probably 26, maybe. 26. So you've been in, in radio since you were 26 years old yeah, uh-huh. and 64. Yeah. Wow. And then where did radio lead you to from there? Other it led places me into in preservation in a, in a, in a kind of different way than most people probably get into it. I didn't really realize I was becoming a preservationist by getting in the radio with this with this proposal, like, let's tell the real story about hmm. African-American culture, because it was all top 40, uh, a lot of buffoonery in it, not real character stuff, mm-hmm. other disciplines weren't in it, you know. 
Right. And that was um, where I was coming from. Now, I gained this knowledge, John, through my dad, through uh, school. I was a good student. Mm -hmm. I liked civics as uh, growing up, man, because it was broad and I read a lot and I could talk to people older than I was about what these things really were. Mm -hmm. So that's how I kind of got my insight. It just gave me a lot of confidence to go ask for what I wanted to do instead of standing on the sidelines. The way I really got to that point was uh, joining the Navy. It was a process to convince my parents, like, I wanted to see the world. Wow. And they were kind of hesitant. I think they figured out he's going to take off. So they signed off. And how long were you in the Navy? Four years. Four years. And so you you pretty much went into the radio fairly shortly out of the Navy. Out of the Navy is where I really got hands-on experience, ship to shore radio. There are two kinds of um, people in the Navy. There are technicians and there are sailors. Mm -hmm. I was a sailor, Mm. boatswain mate. Those are the people that take care of the ship. Right. Can sail without sonar and radar. Wow. Okay. So you have to know all this. You have to know Singapore. You have to know how to mm-hmm. communicate wherever you are there. So I had all of this uh, energy and stuff. I was 17 when I went in, and uh, I just wanted to see things. So I saw most of all the Western Pacific, China, Japan, Okinawa. Wow. I basically went the same route that the the soldiers and sailors did in the Second World War. Mm. And I had choice duty because I was a good sailor. Ah. So that was choice duty to be uh, in a position like that. And I was um, motorboat coxswain for an admiral who was the commander of Service Squadron 3. Wow. So his command was repair ships, things that brought supplies, ammo ships, food, right, uh, and to the task force that would be out at sea. So I've worked it all, man. And what you're actually looking at and talking to now is a um, a sailor that's a landlubber. <laughs> <laughs> Once a sailor, a always boy, a sailor. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I've had a lot of experience with people, as I guess is what I'm saying. So I was a good sailor, right, uh, and 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 got rewarded with good duty, right, right. And I guess your your love in school of civics has also sort of informed not just maybe your sense maybe of duty with the Navy and your desire to see the world and see other cultures, but that's also informed you about our own culture and participation in that culture. You hit it on the head, John. That is what made me realize what I need to do, and I was becoming a preservationist. Really didn't know it, but as I met the challenge and saw things changing in the medium, I actually made some changes happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I took a proposal to a person to listen to me mm-hmm. and let me in there, then I realized bit by bit I should be saving things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I moved a couple of times, spent a good part of my radio career in Alabama mm-hmm. and a little bit in Atlanta, okay, doing the same kind of work. 
Matter of fact, I think that's where my first recognition came from people saying and seeing the results of organizing and funding things. So I became beside a jazz host overnight at Birmingham the same way I did starting out here in Little Rock. Mm -hmm. I also was chairman of the board of a community theater group. Oh, okay. So we raised funds, we did plays, we traveled a little bit uh, further south down to Florida and a little bit in Atlanta doing wow. African-American theater. So I was a, a part of that and, and was recognized by the first African-American mayor of Birmingham, wow. uh, Richard Arrington, in 1983. Now, about that time, I'm making up my mind to come back home on some of these projects I'm looking at. I, I'm down there about eight years by that time. Uh, and are you using your own sort of sense of your, um, as you talked about earlier, your proposals where you sort of had an idea and maybe joined with other like-minded people and uh, I've I've known you for a while just through KBF, and I've known you to sort of be sort of the spearhead and sort of uh, maybe the prime organizational force, if you will. Um, and was that kind of what led you to continued success there in Alabama and what also brought you home? You hit it right on the head, John. Uh, I, I realized that I'm here because of my style of presenting things on radio mm -hmm. and how should I really use it now. But I'm only in commercial radio, which is a different animal right. than public exactly. radio. And I was able to get with organizations that really cared about preservation, and I just embraced everything. Mm -hmm. A lot of people questioned that, but to make partners and collaborations, that which, that's what you got to do. That's how people recognize your passions, your right. Right. willingness to dedicate yourself to, mm -hmm. to achieve some things that they want to see happen. And uh, so I found out how to do that political end and just became that person that stands up. I just stand up and say, hey, we can do it. Let's go do it. <laughs> <laughs> so you said that you had some thoughts about maybe wanting to come home from your success there in Alabama, uh, that was that brought us up to about 83. Where What happened then? Well, realizing what was happening here with uh, um, um, the 630 being the new traffic route as they were planning mm -hmm. this, I left here in 76, so about 83, I'm about seven years into Birmingham, I think, yeah, into Alabama. Uh, and really reached out to the Preservation Alliance here mm -hmm. uh, one year before I came back okay. to home and the state on this project on what to do about the remaining uh, icons on 9th Street, right. how to save them. So I was in touch with all the key preservationists up here. Bill Worthen was the real person that hooked me up with it. ABC, mm. follow these, do these things, and uh, you can actually uh, preserve those buildings. So 400 miles away, a year before I come back here, I'm working <laughs> on this project. <laughs> you never really left Arkansas. I never then. really left. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's a great Arkansas <laughs> citizen right there. Yeah, and man, you never, never leave. Never it, left. It never leaves you, and you never leave it. Yeah. 
So what when when you started getting involved with this, is that when sort of the groundswell of, of folks trying to preserve things kind of started coming together and maybe thought, hey, we should come up with some sort of organizational community force, and that's where the radio station or the inklings <clears throat> of the radio station came from? Well, the people that knew me before uh, ABF came into uh, reality, um, I reached out to them. They were mostly educators. Mm-hmm. But it still took four years working alone to organize the wow. group. Wow. And as we found the partners, the city being the first partner to step up, because we had this qualifying look of dedicated people, Right. what we did was make a call to action as some of those buildings were considered to be torn down and what we needed to do. We made that call to action. About 60 people turned out to that call to action. And that's how we started to roll that ball with real community leaders coming aboard with their expertise. It was those people that did the heavy lifting, John. I was just out there stirring the pot and (laughs) annoying people. (laughs) Bringing attention in the spotlight. Bringing attention. You have to do that to do, man, I pulled grass out of cracks in the sidewalk so they would see us there. Yeah. Uh, and and just went straight to the city for most of the, the the real partnership. Who owned the building? How could we, our little group, get it? We needed a place to work in. They gave us that. They gave us everything that we needed. They started to see the the coalescence of this preservation group coming together. And where did they give you the uh, the 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 place to to organize the workspace? The workspace was actually at the corner of Markham and Main Street. Okay. Right on the corner. Wow. Eventually, we got it uh, about two years before the downtown partnership moved into the same building with us. Well, we were solidly locked into this preservation modality then. We had the primary historic architect that did a lot of this stuff, Tommy Jameson, Mm -hmm. well known for his work in the the Pulaski County Courthouse and other Mm -hmm. places. They gave us a lot of insight on what you can actually do, even in the worst-case scenario. And the worst-case scenario came Mm. and caught us. Mm. A fire destroyed the building after the partnership between the city, the state, and us. But it's also a two-edged sword. It created this catalyst that made everybody recognize what we were trying to do. Mm. So... The fire happened on uh, the seventeenth uh, of March, and on Saint Patrick's eight, Day, nineteen. Let's see, when was that? Ninety-two. When did we start that thing? Ninety. I forgot the actual dates. There. I have to recollect myself here, but the when the fire happened, within forty-eight hours, we were in the Capitol Rotunda. Mm. with the people that had given us the money, the the House and legislative mm-hmm. branches and the Black Caucus doing the lifting had given us the money to start the restoration. So there we were. And Huckabee's still governor then. Mm-hmm. So a good thing about us, we had a, th- a million-dollar policy with Lawrence of London, and wow. we asked him for a million dollars out of the Arkansas Department of Heritage budget. He gave it to us. 
We just kept rolling. We turned a destroyed project into a new building project. Wow. Basically, what looking at now down there, John, is a really a close facsimile of the original building. I know more about it because probably— And we're I'm, talking about Mosaic Templars? The Mosaic Templars. Right. I'm probably one of the few people that were in that building when it was mostly being used mm-hmm. for other purposes, vacated. I actually worked in it uh, about six months after I got out of the Navy in 1959. So I had an idea. That's what I really discovered, the ambience and the aura of the building. Wow. I had only heard about it. (laughs) Wow. Well, what brought you to, when you came back to to Arkansas in the 80s, um, what was sort of the the beginning forces of uh, the community radio station and the idea of that? I came back a month before that, so I had an idea of who was organizing it actually Acorn, I was one of the few people doing late night shows here that got the information about Acorn and their mm-hmm. community work and the, and, the, and the things that they were doing, one of the few commercial stations, because I had this kind of, um, I had the freedom to do what I wanted, John, without having a top 40 format or somebody mm-hmm. saying, you need to be doing this. And so... With the signal being uh, configured the way it was, it was an education for me and most of the white audiences that mm-hmm. listened to that signal. So it was a definite change from screaming top 40 radio at midnight until 5 a.m. It was a whole different thing. Oh, yeah. Not much talk for me, just profiling the artists, their work, which was important to me. So when you first started there at KBF uh, and and KBF first went on the air, you were primarily an on-air host? Yes, jazz. Jazz. I come back to preserve jazz culture, Ninth Street. Right. That's really how I got to the station. I didn't ask to be. It was there. Oh, wow. I just walked into it and said, hey, man, I'll help you. I'm John from KALO. Oh, man, we need you. <laughs> and you've been there ever since. Been there ever since, man. I do everything, John. <laughs> I think you've pretty much done every job there and yeah. probably every shift possible, at but, least probably four or five times. But, you know, I, I feel good about that because it's about the community. It's not about me. Right. Right. Well, speaking of the community, you've been so involved not only as a community activist and and somebody who's trying to to gather people together. Um, you've also been invo- involved with the music community, which you know sometimes is part of the activist community, but sometimes it's not. You've been, as you mentioned, you've been trying to preserve jazz culture and promote jazz culture. Um, speak a little bit about your involvement about Arkansas music and Arkansas musicians, because, like I said, I've I've known you to be involved in Arkansas jazz and blues since at least the the 80s, if not before mm-hmm. that. But but speak a little bit about what you think uh, of your involvement and and how that's affected you. Well, my real involvement with uh, a producer of music was really how I got engaged and interactive with all the cultures of, of these different cultures we got. Lee Anthony's Soul Brothers Record mm-hmm. Shop was one of the people that I hung out with. I knew most of the musicians, John Craig and all mm-hmm. those guys, because we were about the same age and they were the working musicians. Naturally, 
with a kind of show and freedom I had, well, they had a good profile in those late night hours. Sometimes they would even come to the studio mm -hmm. uh, where I was. Now, this, I wasn't at the downtown studio. Mm. I'm at the transmitter site. Oh, okay. Doing these shows. Up on the mountain, right? Not on the mountain yet. Oh, I'm at okay. where the original Pizza transmitter. Okay. Out there okay. because it was AM station, so the transmitter was there. Had a a, 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 a a little desk in there that I did my my program hosting from and just servicing the transmitter. Wow. Back in those days, you had to call out there every hour or so to reach a transmitter and right. things like that. And then, too, with that kind of working atmosphere not being interrupted, I thought through a lot of things, brought a lot of consciousness and awareness to people about everybody needing to hear these stories and know mm -hmm. these people. And that's how I really became engaged with it. My first, my first engagement was with York Wilburn. York Wilburn was also one of the real musicians that you could talk to about their craft and how they they did that. Mm. He he was also he had a band when I was in school, and my first prom was uh, we booked uh, York Wilburn and his band up on Granite Mountain out to oh, Uber wow. Club. I thought I was hot stuff, man. I'm, <laughs> I'm 16. I'm like you. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, there's you, you're you one of many people who have spoken highly of York Wilburn and, and great memories of, of his band and all the people that he's touched through the years. Not just musicians, but, but also people, mm -hmm. just listeners and, yeah. and dancers and people that remember them from, from when they played their high school dances and such. Yeah. So I was engaged with Lee. I met musicians that probably never would have had he not had that Soul Brothers record shop because mm -hmm. he was a great producer, man. Albert oh, yeah. King and all those people he brought to the studios and True recorded. Soul Records, yeah. True Soul Records, man. Great, great label. Yeah, yes. they. I don't know if you've. I'm sure you're aware of the uh, the reissue stuff that they did in 2011, mm -hmm. and and that is. It sounds great. It looks great. It's got that TV special as part of the DVD yeah. package. It's a great little package. And most of those guys I knew, those guys and gals, I personally knew them, man. Wow. And there's a lot of those folks that are still around and still, and some of them are still playing Thomas East and yes. occasionally John Craig and some of those mm -hmm. folks. Yeah. And so you've been involved with Arkansas music and Arkansas musicians for so long. Talk about how you think that KBF has helped um, and, and helped organize musicians because there's not a, a quarter that passes that there's not some sort of benefit that musicians are organizing for KBF and they're doing that and playing for free. They're not getting paid. They're trying to raise money for KBF and they believe so strongly in that. Talk about how you think that, that KBF affects musicians and, and how they are able to use it as an outlet for themselves and their music. Well, starting in, in the Little Rock community with people that I knew and wanting to kind of um, bring in more cultures that had not been presented is, I think, what people began to realize, especially the artists, the other musicians realizing mm -hmm. it. So once we did the, the basic things like blues and jazz and country music and, and, uh, and, the, and the rock, Mm -hmm. stuff um 
we began to reach out for the international mm-hmm. uh, diversity that this state needed, and and the station has been instrumental in it. Mm-hmm. So now we've gotten um, things more on a level playing field because of this. Uh, prior to community radio as we know it, public radio as we know it, there was not that much diversity in uh, commercial radio. Mm-hmm. You didn't hear Spanish here. Right. You didn't hear Asian Indians. You didn't mm-hmm. hear Japanese here. It changed. It was like a paradigm shift, John. It's mm-hmm. how I feel it has impacted communities not only here locally, but consider the fact that we have been documented in reaching 159 countries. Mm. That means there are people all over the world that heard us at one time or other, mm-hmm. and I think really appreciate the uh, the uh, the effort. So it's crossed all the the um, disciplines. Last week, or uh, last couple of weeks ago, we had um, uh, the new owner of the original place in France um, where the Burgundy uh, grape was developed. Oh, wow. Uh, before that, we had a call from South Korea so and Australia. It, so it now has... Um, um, an international impact, I mm-hmm. guess, is the simplest way to say it and make people realize, or rather to get people to realize, the value of communities worldwide. Right. It's big. It's right. bigger than us. Right. And the and the Arkansas community is part of the bigger worldwide yes. community, and, and its position there is sometimes overlooked and underrated, really? um, I think, unfortunately. But I think the way that KBF works they sort of try to work within internally within the state but then they also try to present things from elsewhere to folks within the state but also the reverse they try to present things from arkansas to other people um and and i think that we're y'all are really good at that um is is kbf the first community radio station in arkansas that you know of yes it is is and uh, uh, i know that there are uh, at least have been attempts to of others to start some of them have uh, unfortunately folded and I think that there are a couple of other ones that are still um, up and running right now but but KBF was the first in 84 the very first community radio station in Arkansas right very first station now we're we didn't start out at 100,000 watts but it was about two years before we were able to reach that uh, Did it start out as an FM signal? Or FM signal. signal. Always been originally. an FM signal because of the allocation. Now there was a long uh, round of competition between the University of Arkansas and Acorn for this eighty-eight point three signal frequency. Okay. Yeah, and so it, it was granted to Acorn, a community organizing group, and it's been moving forward ever since. Now it's to the point, John, where at one hundred thousand watts. It is maybe one of 10, maybe 12 independent standalone stations in the country. Right. That's what I thought. Maybe yeah. even so in the world. So, And the only real close sort of uh, analog to KBF would, I guess, be uh, KNON in Dallas, in Dallas, right? Isn't that mm-hmm. sort of the sort of defunct or, or, or uh, de facto sister station? Yes. Right? 
You're um, right about that. So, but, but KABF has uh, power that covers most of Arkansas. It gets into most of these 75 counties or so, mm. whereas KNON has uh, only 50,000 watts. Right. And the population density of Dallas, it can't. Right. This is one of the few community radio stations that really really can reach the entire state with its regular terrestrial radio signal, not to mention the the uh, listen Internet, live right. aspect of, of the radio station online as well. Right. So now the low power stations are coming into being, and that's how we want to network with them, help lift them up so they can reach the world that we are out there into. What you've always been involved with the jazz and the blues programs there at KBF. Have those always been the ones that seem to get the most response and the most um, interest from the public, or, or or has that changed over the years since '84 uh, to now? It's changed. It's become more inclusive, but the original boards worked on the demographics of jazz and blues. Mm-hmm and gospel music because most of those demographics were not in mainstream radio with any real political power. And it was political power that- And still the, aren't, yeah. Yeah, I mean, people looking for it in mm-hmm. this instance. Uh, it's not just about, uh, you know, it's about how to use your creative uh, talents to reach communities mm-hmm. and, 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 and do good things. So it's a little bit broad. It might seem vague the way I'm saying it, but that's the short missionary station, uh, uh, statement I think I would want to make about that. Now, when we've come to many uh, uh, crossroads in, the, in in developing the station, developing staff, mm-hmm. um, administratively, man, we'll always be behind the eight ball. It's like that. Yeah. Um, when you want to do good things, uh, you just have to... Uh, Bite the bullet, embrace it, however you want to deal with it. But in reality, it's going to be shortened. We use volunteers were it not for them. Um, if we were institutionalized, I mean institutionalized by being funded by um, organizations that uh, might have a different agenda than us, I don't think we would be here at all. Wow. Well, it, because most a lot of folks may not realize that almost everything that is done on KBF by folks uh, participating in KBF Community Radio is all volunteer. Nobody gets paid. There's only just, what, two? Maybe two uh, or three two? contracted shows or something like that, John. But other than that, it's all volunteer. And there's only two or three paid staff at all uh, as yeah. far as the, as the station. Everybody else is completely... Um, on a volunteer basis, right? Mm-hmm. They're volunteering their time and their effort. Wow. Are you are you aware of of uh, the the longest running show on KBF? What is the longest running show? I've always been curious. Is would that be the Traffic Jam? What would what would that be? That would be jazz, not Traffic Jam. A the lot jazz, of people okay. want to say, "Oh, I did the first show," but in reality. In configuring a station, the engineer goes through um, a configuration analysis, a lot of testing. Mm-hmm. Uh, people might think you're yeah, on the air. So we've had people sitting in playing music while the engineer was at the transmitter, ah, gotcha. fine-tuning things. They actually thought that, you know, we were broadcasting. But 
uh, short, long and short of that is we actually got on the air, John, the last day of the allocation oh, for getting wow. that license up and running. Oh, wow. August 31st, 1984 was the wow. last day. Tom Russell, primary engineer, still is. Uh, were it not for him and his skills, man, we would not have this this signal we have now. Oh, man. Uh, he's devoted and, and, and just given a lot of time, more than anybody else, really, uh, in keeping that signal on the air. He'll be there when the when it's, the ice is shutting the signal down, it's Tom that walks two miles up that hill oh, man. to make sure it's there. So that kind of uh, uh, dedication just backed up my own um, commitment. Mm-hmm. So I've walked three miles to come to the station where nobody else would. Uh, that's what it takes, man. It's not something that you can just walk away from. You have to realize the value of it, man. It's so vast that if you don't do something, it could be gone in an instant. Right. And everybody loses. So it's that kind of thing that's kept this on there. It's a miracle. There's so many people that have been completely dedicated to not only getting it on the air, but keeping Keeping it on the air. It's a miracle, John. Making sure that it is. It's a daily miracle, frankly. It really is. Yes, sir. Just when you realize... um, how many people who are getting paid aren't there most of the time? Um, because most of the time, whoever's on the air is completely volunteer. Right. Um, uh-huh. And and a lot of the inner workings is of the station is by volunteers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's completely and, amazing. And they have their own creative um, uh, initiative going there. We don't try to tell them what it is. We just want to be sure that mm-hmm. what they're trying to do has some good thought out uh uh, processes in it so they have a plan and that they build an audience and that it's reflected. Mm-hmm. It comes right. through Pledge Drive mostly. Uh, or people show up for events that we produce. Right. It may take a while for people to get, become aware of a show, but people will respond. If you're, do, do. If, you're, if you're hitting your target audience, they will respond uh, by, by support of the show and when you do shows uh, and promote shows. Uh, and people come out, you'll you'll know that people mm-hmm. are responding to what you're doing for sure. And let me tell you, the most satisfying thing that, that I recognize from that, man, is that if when somebody makes a pledge and pay it and that comes out of their pocket, there's nothing that can beat that. Right. It don't matter the size of the donation. It's that somebody actually liked us enough to put their right. money down. Man, that's... Uh, and as you well know... It's the fulfillment of the pledge that really, really, really makes it. Really the pledge is something, but mm-hmm. it's when because anybody can pledge to do that. But when they really come through and fulfill that pledge, like you said, no matter what size the donation is, if it's two dollars, five dollars, ten thousand dollars, just the follow through is the is the payoff. Really, it's a statement. It's, it's 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 a miracle, man. It's, it's the ma- statement. Yeah, it makes it you really feel is. good, and you can go home and and uh, uh, just you know. Look at that in retrospect, and come back with with a new energy. Like it, it re-energizes you every time I go and come <laughs> back. I'm energized. Right. People say, "Well, why do you do that?" I have to. I'm the kind of person that has to be moving. I can't sit still. Right. And procrastinate to myself about things that need to happen. And that's why you're a great prime mover and motivator and organizer. You're 
that that not being able to sit still i don't know if that's uh just from uh not wanting to sit still or just because you have so many things that are pressing on your mind and your spirit to to cause you to want to get up and do something but whatever it is it's it's certainly been there for a long time and it's certainly all of that, served John. not just you but many many other yeah, people yeah yeah it's all of that you know we all got uh uh, uh talent mm-hmm. some are unique I like to call everybody special so that nobody feels like, oh, I'm out here because unique can be flipped a couple of ways. So so uh, I just like to engage people. Uh, most times I'm civil. <laughs> and I just like to see what, what it is people want to do with media because each one of us is our own media uh uh, we can, we can, we can. Um, um, what am I trying to word? Come up here with mediate our own media. That's right. Well, I mean, just like we're doing a podcast that will appear on KBF Radio, a lot of folks can do that. You know, um, yes. a band coming up out of Little Rock, Arkansas, right now can have a website or a Facebook page that's effectively just as effective as something that Bruce Springsteen may have. Yes. And and look how long he's been established. And you know, as a matter of fact, he doesn't even own BruceSpringsteen.com. He owns BruceSpringsteen.net because mm. somebody beat him to the punch with the .com. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I appreciate radio because this is the original broadcast medium. To make it simple, John, without the radio wave, there would be no TV, there would be no internet. You got to have it. It's the mother of broadcasting. Mm-hmm. Radio. I, you know, something in the news now, and I, and I thought about this earlier. I read about this yesterday, and knowing that we were going to have this uh, this talk, I wanted to ask you about this. Norway, as a country, today or tomorrow, if I'm not mistaken, is going to kill off their FM signal and go to a complete digital broadcast signal throughout the entire country. Um, apparently, a lot of countries have thought about this for a while. Norway is the first, mainly because of their particular geography. Um, they have really weird signal problems uh, with mountains and valleys and things like that that are not conducive for FM transmission. So they're going to digital broadcasting. I wonder your take on that. Um, we have gone from um, analog television signal in the United States to a digital television signal. Um, and I wonder your thoughts on that and what you think that if that may ever happen to terrestrial radio. I don't think so. I think it is such an iconic uh, uh, part of broadcast that it'll always be there. Yes, some segments of radio, and I'm talking mostly commercial here, will probably go there. Mm-hmm. But overall, um, I don't see everything going that way. It's been bubbling up here for a while, but it's never really seemed to catch on fire and really take off. Um, you know, satellite radio has in, in more of a way than than digital broadcast has. And I don't know if that seems to be sort of the entrenched uh, commercial aspects. <clears throat> People don't want to upgrade equipment and spend a lot of money to basically be able to do the same thing they're already doing. I, I don't know. Does that seem to... Uh, do you think that seems to be part of it as far as the reluctance of the industry to move forward on that? I think so. And 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 two, 
the uh, radio will, it will never, the technology will never diminish. It, you, can, you can plug into it technically uh, at different levels. And it's, it's, it's that investment in what it is you're trying to do both creatively and the return on your investment. Um, it'll always be here. It will never, ever be a one-sided technology mm, because okay. of the value of the radio wave itself. And, the, that's and a the, part. In, the existing infrastructure to support it as yeah, well. Yeah, uh-huh. and that's, uh, that is because also the radio wave is a part of the essential environment. Without that, I mean, I just don't see it going away, ever changing. Do you think that, that digital radio and, and digital broadcasting, uh, particularly radio, obviously, can can augment or uh, uh, maybe help fill in some spaces that regular FM, AM radio transmission is missing, you know, kind of in the way that you have these niche channels in mm. satellite radio. Do you see a similar thing or a uh, maybe a news channel, uh, sub channel uh, and digitally? Do you see th those kinds of things happening? That's always been that, those sub channels. The geography, as you mentioned, with Norway is mm -hmm. another factor. Gotcha. So niche yeah, it's there. That's radio. It's, mm -hmm. It can be here. And right. If, and if you don't have a big enough signal, it'll be on top of you. KBF is a collection of niche broadcasts. Yes, it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and talk shows. And, and talk shows and, and things you don't you won't get in other broadcast mediums unless the individuals are paid to produce them. Mm. Not like concerned citizens coming as an advocate for what they creatively perceive and want to, mm -hmm. to move forward on. So uh, uh, public radio is in that place. It'll always be there. Commercial radio might change because of its options. Mm -hmm. But commercial radio, if you look at it, is much different from uh, what you can do in public radio with politics, you know, economies and all mm -hmm. those things. You can actually move people toward them, and it's a people thing. It's not mm -hmm. one individual uh, coming with all the resources and dictating how it rolls out. Mm -hmm. And people can, volunteers and, 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 and activists can see that feedback. You can mm -hmm. feel it. Right. You're engaged in it. Right. You actually see the changes. They're slow, but they're changes, man. <laughs> it's, it's amazing to see it. And when you look back on it, John, you say, what? Look at what we did. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it yeah. happens so slowly you don't feel the temperature changing and suddenly you realize, hey, the pot's boiling. Look yeah. what we did. We, look what we did. <laughs> look what we've done. We brought mm -hmm. it to a boil. Yeah, so that's a community thing, man. And it, It's more satisfying than other things that you kind of might fall into. Well, um, and a lot of the digital broadcasts and, and a lot of the, the, the online broadcasts are more of a streaming where – you mostly hear artists maybe not chosen for you. You give them some sort of favorite artist and they come up with some computer analog that 
spits out some similar artists and things that they may think that you're into, but you don't ever get any of that sort of reinforcement of local culture and history and perspective and things that are happening within not just your own community, but the uh, the other communities within the larger community mm-hmm. geographically of which yeah. you live in. You realize uh, a lot of things there. And one other thing, radio is branded. It came that way. <laughs> it's not something that you're not sure of or has passed through some mm-hmm. kind of collaborative thing that, that makes it stand out. Uh, Radio is a branded thing. People have been listening to it. They will always listen to it and for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's how it's going to be. I don't see it ever going away in any form. I mean, outside of public speaking, it was the first way that not just politicians, but just other folks within you know, the United States began to communicate with other people, yes. wide, large amounts of people all at one time in an immediate sense, Yes, an, in an immediate way. Mm-hmm. And it can bring a lot of drama or whatever the the tension is. It just it has this branded thing. Now, how did it get that way? A few weird characters in it or uh, eccentrics, if you want to call them that, uh, with their creative thought and stuff. Mm-hmm. The War of the Worlds. Oh yeah. Crap, people! They actually thought they were in a war. Oh yeah. A world like they what? thought Martians were landing. Yes. Yeah. Orson so, <laughs> Welles outdid himself with that one. Yes. He certainly did. So that's its value. It makes people be a part of it, and they feel like they have an investment in it mm-hmm. because of that thing it's got. Mm-hmm. Well, it's and it's easy, I think, maybe to recognize maybe the investment or, or sense the investment and the involvement maybe when it's part of the fabric of your day-to-day life. Yeah. Um, you know, when you get in the car, you're listening to your favorite DJ. Um, I know plenty of people that do lots of streaming, but when they get in the car, they're straight radio. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just uh-huh. FM only. They've got right. satellite radio. Uh-huh. They never turn it on. They're mm-hmm. listening to their yeah. local station and, and catching up on news and information, and KBF is a huge part of that. It's a huge part of that. I, I, I get a lot of calls from people. They say, what do you do with your free time? I said, listen to radio. <laughs> they think I'm kind of joking and just, you know, uh, like, what is this guy? But when I really want free time mm-hmm. from my friends, business mm-hmm. partners, relatives, I turn on the radio to something that I want to hear that I haven't heard. Right. And I'm there. Wow. Right there. So I could be at home out on the deck cooking or just out there. Mm-hmm. If I really want to be connected, but doing what I want to do that 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 time I need it's not free time it's it's me uh just analyzing my own self I think in most mm-hmm. cases but that's how I live well speaking of how you live and and part of the ways that that you are connecting with not just your radio audience but the community as part of an activist you have developed the John Kane Foundation uh, and it is a 501c3 foundation. So uh, give me a little background on what that is, when you had the impetus to start that or where that came from, and, and what you are trying to accomplish with this. Well, the foundation really comes from the preservation work that created the new building for the Mosaic Temples Cultural Center. Okay. It's just an expansion of it. It's because of the legislation that was built into that. Okay. 
to make it a museum, John, and a cultural center. Mm -hmm. So the legislation for the cultural center part of it is to create incubator business breakout in that. It's never been done. The foundation can do that work now. Okay. So the foundation's mission in the short sense is health and wellness in the community, economically, preservation, of course, is a part of that, mm -hmm. um, and still bringing new creative thought to, um, uh, I guess you want to call it, the crafts, the art disciplines, and all those things that don't get their fair share of the spotlight, so to speak. Okay. So it's still preservation for the foundation. Business incubator breakout from the legislation that made the Mosaic Templars Cultural Center a museum and cultural centers. Right. Otherwise, uh, it would have been just a place to go few things that most people might consider, oh, well, a museum is where dead things are, things that don't move. Right. That's a place where, where things are happening. There are things that are being created there. It's not just past history, but it's uh, it's present now history and, and, and future things to yeah. happen. So in the short term, I guess, John, what I'm saying is that the foundation is carrying on the work of preservation that was started by our society. When I first struck the initiative and were trying to find people here, they were saying it like, oh, man, you need a foundation to do that. I said, no, you got it backwards. Mm. <laughs> you need a preservation society to preserve this building that's about to be torn down. Right. <laughs> then you got right. something to work on. And then you have a place to work from to work and from. out of. Yeah. yeah. With a real mission statement. So, so you, you talk about the business breakout, the small business mm -hmm. breakout. What what exactly is that? Tell me a little bit more about that. Well, let's look at arts and crafts. Looking at African-American opportunities now with the collapse of that. It was like, it's a city. It was a, Ninth Street was a city in a city. Mm -hmm. From the 1800s up until old businesses were moved off the street in 76. I was so frustrated, I left too. Mm. Uh, and looking at that, it's a way to, you know, uh, through creative uh, initiatives, bring back the business aspect of it because when the uh, city made the decision, along with the state, to create the I-630 corridor, all those businesses that were there that had survived for years mm -hmm. were suddenly leaving. And now, because of eminent domain, correct? Eminent domain and all that stuff, John. So now there's the opportunity to recreate a community that was the principal part of the development of the city. Looking back at how Ninth Street was physically built, it was federal troops directed by the president and department of whatever, whatever to build these shacks and shanties for freed African-Americans after right, which, the war. Which was, at, at the time, which was fairly unique within the South. Arkansas yes. was, um, at that particular time, viewed as a fairly 
forgiving and liberal state as far as for freed slaves, Mm -hmm. correct? Right. And that came from, I think, really, um, when Jefferson directed, uh, proposed the Louisiana Purchase, Mm -hmm. it was Arkansans that did that work. Arkansas surveyors. Right. It started here, as they say. It started here. Yeah. So Arkansas is not recognized for a lot of things that we've been branded as not being, Mm -hmm. you know, collective and working together. But just look at history itself, and it will tell you where Arkansas came down on human rights, civil rights. Yes, there was a whole political uh, agenda for years that people had to deal with. Uh, but if you don't stand up, you get nothing. Mm-hmm. And so Arkansas has been standing up for years and years for some basic things that made it not a backward state, but a state up front. If you look at it, history, it tells mm-hmm. you where we are with our resources, our actual geography. Right. And all the products that come out, that came out before um uh, you know, um, modern times and the things that are being developed out of Arkansas now. I remember uh, when I was in school, one of my, uh, um, I believe, middle school teachers told us that at least at that point in time, Arkansas was one of the few states, if you just sort of built a wall around the state uh, border, that Arkansas could basically exist and take care of itself completely independently from any other state or any other yes, uh, uh, entity. Uh-huh. Uh, we are complete. We are one of the few that are self-sufficient, even f- as far as minerals and diamonds. And he made a point to point that out and to, to talk about all of the different things that we would be able to do that other states they and areas of the country uh-huh. would not be able to do. Yeah. It, uh, it is a unique t- uh, state and a unique place. If mm-hmm. you have looked at it, I'm certain you have, the geological things that's oh, happened yeah. over the years that made it the mountain state and, and the, delta the delta at the same to, time. Yeah. Two, two, you know, and state state parks and national parks and the first national park in Hot Springs. Right. And, uh, it, Arkansas has an amazing, amazing history. Um, to talk about... A, a little bit more about the uh, as far as the breakout businesses and and uh, also your your health and wellness um, uh, priority for the future and and how your foundation is is going to try to address that. We're going to take on health and wellness from the senior aspect and the youth coming up. Uh, autism is a big uh, factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people are concerned about. We want to be working on that. We want to work on things for the elderly, such as intergenerational things that happen between young people and old people. Okay. Conversations like we're having about Mm. life and what happens when you do the wrong thing or or here's how you do the right thing. So, and preservation, always preservation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We want to focus on one of the iconic uh, figures and houses that are still here, and that's Ernest Green's house Mm. at 24th and Pulaski. Uh, some people said, well, why doesn't Ernest Green save the house? People don't do that. They're moving on with their lives when they leave the homestead. Mm-hmm. And it's up to preservationists to recognize achievements and, 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 uh, and, uh, and the protocol and procedure that says that's a valuable piece of property there. It should be historically correct. Once you can mm-hmm. get into that, man, you, 
you're doing things that that will really give people initiative. So the the job aspects are to own property and use it as a teaching method for marginalized people to realize what they need to do to save their property and pass it on to the next generation. Mm-hmm. You got to pay the taxes. You got to keep it looking good. Mm-hmm. Uh, trust, family trust, or any kind of trust can be problematic if the wrong person is heading up the trust for mm-hmm. that. Uh, we haven't been able to do that. That's where we want to go. I think we even need a school based on the African-American culture uh, and how we should be teaching youth these mm-hmm. things that they don't get if they come from a single family, a uh, uh, single parent family. Uh, I, I think that's a great idea. And, you know, there's there's so much uh, there's so much contribution that people aren't aware of. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I, I just saw uh, something the other day that somebody had mentioned about the uh, the new movie uh, Hidden Figures about the African-American women uh, in NASA that their calculations and basically their math wizardry uh, not only put John Glenn in space, but made sure he came back to Earth in one piece. Um, And it's odd that we are finding this out now as we just laid John Glenn to rest. uh, So uh, ironically, uh, we're finding this out in a movie and I'm a pretty good student of history and try to read a lot of books and try to keep up with history, and I'd never known that to this point. Um, NASA has not made a secret of that and has tried to talk about that, but I think the 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 broader uh, uh, public may be just not aware of that, and, and maybe they don't look to NASA for that kind of information, perhaps. Uh, but that's exactly the kinds of things that folks need to know about because not only is it part of American history, but it's a part of American history that can sort of inform and inspire Americans to create new American history. That's uh, what the foundation wants to do, do those kind of things, those hidden stories. Everybody's got a story. Mm -hmm. And uh, people only recognize its value once they've separated themselves kind of from, you know, uh, a culture or or something and, 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 and try to move forward with their lives. So historically, being correct, mm-hmm. that means you have to do the work. You need to study. You need to read. You need to set aside time. You need to make it a routine of, what can I discover today? Mm-hmm. That kind of attitude. Yeah. Yeah. And so some of the things that you're talking about are, are going to be... Uh, perhaps uh, part of the uh, rebuilding and the restructuring of the Mosaic Templars Cultural Center. That was where you got sort of your um, Arkansas preservationist chops, I I would, I guess maybe is a way to say Mm -hmm. that. Um, And so uh, talk about just a little bit about Ninth Street and Mosaic Templars Cultural Center. And and I mean, I'm aware, uh, and for more information, I would certainly invite many folks to access the Encyclopedia of Arkansas at encyclopediaofarkansas.net to find out more about Arkansas history and specifically the Mosaic Templars Cultural Center. But um, you knowing this, talk about a little bit about 
the history of the Mosaic Templar is not just the center, but just the 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 organization. I, I know at one time it was uh, the largest organization uh, of African Americans in the world, and was not only throughout. Uh, uh, America, Southern America particularly, but also on in the Bahamas and, and all over the world. So talk a little bit about that and, and maybe why though that organization was even started in the first place. It was started because of the lack of amenities and services that would make a better lifestyle for African Americans. Uh, shortly after Abraham Lincoln uh, uh, made the Emancipation uh, Proclamation, that would be 1865. About seven years later, John Bush and C.W. Keats were working to organize the Mosaic Templars. They were working as an ad hoc group mm-hmm. because they had no resources, no voting, no property is how they actually started. So uh, they were actually a sort of a fraternal organization for mm-hmm. about six or seven years until they got to the place where they could actually own property mm-hmm. and this is how the the building of the the templars came to be physically in a house much like the uh, masonic lodge mm-hmm. which is flag and banner company started in a right. house later an architect built a larger building for the services and stuff so they provided a lot of amenities insurance being the basic one right for African Americans and burial insurance, and burial most insurance specifically. at that, and so that's how they grew the business to the point where it became a principal part of sustainability for a lot of people in the Caribbean. The nineteen twenty nine depression knocked it off its block like it did everything else. Mm-hmm. A surviving chapter of that came out of a chapter in Mount Vernon, New York. Mm. Uh, the um, uh, Some of the chapter members moved back to their home country, which was Barbados, kept the chapter alive. Ah. As we began the preservation project in the late 80s, uh, then we saw that happening as people from around the world started to contact us, wanting to know if one, if it was a viable business, did it still have an mm-hmm. insurance? If it did, give us our money, <laughs> <laughs> kind of like that. Right. And we just told them, no, we don't have the money, not the business. We're just a preservation society, and this is the mission we're on. Uh, so having that as proof of performance, that Barbados chapter mm-hmm. was the most solid piece of evidence that it was worth the, the the business aspects that developed that. Mm-hmm. So that chapter is still out there in Barbados on St. Michael. And it's still a fraternal operating Still a fraternal, fraternal operating entity. So, and they the, are still providing sort of a collective uh, bargaining chip for insurance and, mm-hmm. and things like that, Things correct? like that. So basically what the foundation has as an opportunity is to reestablish that uh, business, mm-hmm. starting with an international chapter. Uh, wow. Because you have to be initiated into the chapter uh, to be a part of it. It's not something you can just 
loosely associate yourself with. Because it's a fraternal organization, so you have to be invited and be a viable part of the organization to Mm -hmm. be invited in. So looking down the road, a long ways down the road, long after I'm gone and Mohammed Rashid, who's a co-founder of the foundation, is gone, we want to have that infrastructure up for the continuity Mm. to carry on the work of the original temples. That's what it's really about, John. Well, and the great thing about this is is that the the proof that the Barbados chapter is still operating now in 2017, and it started in 1860, 70, whatever, um, it was started, a lot of people don't realize the importance of this. This was one of the first organizations that helped African Americans afford burial insurance because white companies would not sell to them. It was not just something that it, it, it wasn't even an option. It wasn't even offered. It just was not done. Not that. People had to beg to People be buried. People had to beg to be buried, and, and the expenses of that could not be surmounted for the average family in, in any easy way. And so mm-hmm. the, the, the collective need brought together the collective organization. Yes. Kind of like community radio in a way, strangely yeah, enough. Yeah, kind of like um, that, John. Um, but the, the importance of this is that not only does – the place where it was formed, the building still there. Obviously, it burned and has been rebuilt and tried to be rebuilt in a way that was respectful for the original place. I think there's still a couple of stones that were there originally that are still there. Um, but the building is still there, and the organization and the idea behind it is still in operation elsewhere. And, yeah. and this was this is not only part of Arkansas history, this is part of world history and African American history for the entire planet. And it and it's Arkansas and a lot of people don't realize that. Don't and that's realize the importance it. of the mm-hmm. Mosaic Templars uh, Museum and Cultural Center. Yes. That's the whole part of it. That the fire, John, that destroyed the building really brought forth a lot of information. In the cornerstone of that building mm-hmm. we found a copy of the original charter oh my God. for the Templars. The foundation basically— From 1860 or 70, uh, whatever? Uh, 1882. Oh, my God. And found it. So, um, and the Department of Heritage got that archive. So we took that, the wow. foundation, and said, we want to follow these— business plans that develop it. Mm-hmm. That's basically what we're going to try to do. So you're trying to honor the original mission of the Mosaic Templars and the fraternal organization and, and the mission of of when it was formed, when it was in the greatest need. And obviously the need still exists, and, mm-hmm. and that's why you do what you do. We got work to do. <laughs> you got work to do like you you got a job baby like uh like Isley brother said I got work to do. <laughs> That's it John. Uh and so I I think uh it'll be an icon for as long as the foundation carries out that mission. Mhm. Well, John Kane, I am so privileged to have you here on Primary Sources today. I thank you for joining us. I thank you for all the great work that you've done over the years and all the great work that you're doing now and will do for many years to come. Thank you so much, and we appreciate you being here with us today on Primary Sources. Thank you for inviting me, John. Primary Sources is a production of the Central Arkansas Library System and its Arkansas History Department, the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies in Little Rock. For more information, visit cows.org 
and butlercenter.org. Our producer is Glenn Whaley, and our production manager is Brett Ratliff. Our executive producers are Leanne Blackwell-Hoskin and David Strickland. For more information, check out cals.org slash podcasts for a free podcast of primary sources interviews. Thanks for listening. Thank you.